Episode 41, Shana Nice Dambrat and Osceola Retitoff. My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm your host. Normally, I come to you each week from the luxurious library bar in the magnificent Mayfair Hotel, right here in downtown L.A. Tonight, however, I made a call on Chung King's studio. The studio's in an old storefront, heart of Chung King Road, where curved ornamental leaves, black-tiled roofs, and Chinese characters in neon poke at the crimson lanterns that line the walkway and bathe the street in a blood red. I spy my appointment through the plate window. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any, and... Oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 My guests tonight are curator, critic, and author Shana Nice dambrat and photographer Osceola Retitoff. They've recently collaborated on Zen Psychosis, a novella of oneric fiction. Shana is perhaps best known for her critical work as the arts editor of the LA Weekly and for her numerous contributions to art magazines, exhibition catalogs, and fine art books. Osceola has had his photojournalism syndicated by Hemispheres, the LA Times, the New York Times, and Reuters, among many other publications, and it's earned him recognition as the current LA Press Club's National Photojournalist of the Year. His work is widely exhibited, most recently with the San Diego Art Institute and the Palm Springs Art Museum. They're here to talk about their project Zen Psychosis, which is just out on Griffith Moon Press. Shane is going to be reading a few excerpts and signing copies in the bookstore on January 25th at 6 p.m. That's a Saturday. After the signing, um, we're going to have a reception. It'll be held in the Chunking Studio, just a few doors down from the store. And it's going to be a lot of uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Charlie James Gallery is also open that night, and so I urge you to attend. Zen Psychosis is a fascinating bit of literature, and it's accompanied by some really spectacular photography. I think you'll enjoy them talking about how it all came about and, and, and learning exactly what is oneric fiction. Please welcome Shana and Osceola. Welcome, Shana and Osceola. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, we, I will, I'm glad to be here because we are in your studio. That's right, here in Chinatown, just down the block. So anyway, we're tra- here to talk about the book, which we previously sort of discussed. We teased uh, it a bit. Right, 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 right. So, um, and the reason we're here is because Osceola has, um, and, and for lack of a better word, I, I, he provided um, photographs to supplement the work. Right, as opposed to like saying like illustrate. Huh. Well, that's that's probably a pretty good characterization since neither the the photographs were not specifically created for the book, but they I think complement it in a way that's huh. not directly literal. That they're not meant to illustrate specific scenes, but to be in the character, um, similar flavor to the to the writing. Huh. 
Well, I think what, what Osceola was saying and what both of you were getting at, I mean, here's what actually happened, which is kind of a magic thing, is that both the book I first wrote, I mean, I'm old, right? So everything's about 15 years ago. And, and then the photographs that are in the book, the majority of them, Osceola had also been making during the last... 10, 15 years. I mean, you started when you were living in Hollywood, right? Most of the photos were taken between 2009 and 2011, oh. and some of them were taken as recently as this year. So did you guys year. know each other at that point? No, no we no. worked, oh. so that's the thing. So the book really represents these, both of these bodies of work that we each had that were largely executed before and sort of put in drawers before huh. we even met each other. Wow. And what wound up happening, but then it turns out that they have this total synchronicity. And what, what wound up happening that was kind of the spark was um, when we did finally first meet, I saw one of these images that's now on the cover of the book. And I said, you don't know this because nobody knows this, but I've written this book. And if I ever publish it, promise me that you'll let me put that photo on the cover. Oh. And he's like, what book? And so he read it, becoming then like the third living person that had ever read it, <laughs> which was terrifying for me. But he was into it, which was amazing. Right. Um, and then fast forward, you know, five years later, there the book exists and that photograph is in fact on the cover. So a lot happened in between, but that that's kind of how it went. So the book, though, is like, it's classified, I would guess to say classified, um, is experimental, right? Or, mm -hmm. I mean, it has, it, it, it's surrealist? Yes. Or how would you describe it? Well, you know, there is actually a word that's a genre that oh. it exists within. It's just that it's this, like, obscure, arcane like nerdy pants <laughs> times a million genre, but um, it's and called it, that would be oneric. Oh. O n e i r i, and so it's a it's it was a, a sub genre of Eastern European surrealist literature, which, like a lot of other forms of surrealism, especially visual, which comes back in a second, very much the photograph, mm -hmm. um, was curious about um, the the way that dreams function in the subconscious and the conscious mind. And so oneric fiction was an attempt to write literature in a way that followed what, for lack of a better word, you might call dream logic, or the right. structure that you would think of how a dream unfolds. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not quite that in that it's based on a dream journal, so it's a little bit inverted, but that's basically the idea. So. A little bit experimental. So, so, sorry, wait, wait, wait. So how is it inverted then? Well, because an oneric fiction is fiction that's meant to feel like a dream. Oh. And this is actually dreams right. that are meant to feel like you're just reading fiction. Yeah. yeah. So, no, But it's the closest I, I, thing. And then that is where Osceola can speak to the concerns in the portfolio of pinhole exposures and what that has been about for him as an artist, which is shockingly similar to what I just described. And so that's a good segue. So the pinhole piece of that, uh, I mean, how does that fit in terms of, of dream sequences and like the idea that, like, because pinholes, like, 
it, it naturally blurs things if things aren't sitting still, right? Well, the, there's pinholes and pinholes. The ones that I do tend to feel a bit blurry, and they feel, um, I think, have a sort of nostalgic feel that you get from... They remind me a little bit of the, the 1960s or 70s square format mm. uh, prints that faded on your grandparents' walls. And um, we associate this out-of-focus look with dream logic. Right, I was gonna ask you about that. I mean, because it's like, if you're gonna, I, I know, again, for lack of a better word, illustrate a dream, like the trope is to be all gauzy and like, right? It's what we got. I mean, I, I agree, it's, it's, it's a, a Hollywood construct. I think mm -hmm. in real life, we dream in code of color process normal. Oh God, my fucking dreams are like so HD crazy. Are they? Like, <laughs> it's so vibrant. So mine, mine just feel like everyday life and then someone walks by and they don't have a face. You know, like, <laughs> right, right. They look normal, but crazy shit happens. Yeah, yeah, right. crazy shit. But as a film student, you realized that we needed a there was a shorthand visual language ah. to tell audiences they were looking at a dream. So you get some harp music, you would go a little bit <laughs> fuzzy around the Walk edges, ugly, bobby, and then wavy. <laughs> yeah. But specifically in some of these images, you actually do have people without faces. Um, a lot of the pinholes, because the it, the pinholes are very small exposure, a very small aperture. So right. it's f. 200 and whatever and so it takes either a lot of light or a lot of time to make an exposure mm -hmm. and usually it's time so most of the most of the exposures are long enough that if someone moves their face gets sort of blurred, obscured yeah. or blurred and so there's there's a couple of images um, in the book where uh, I was on Broadway one night there's an image called Broadway sachet and it's a couple and the woman's face is vivid but the man must have moved his face during the exposure, so he's a man without a face, which to me reads very much like something you might see in a dream. Right. The other photo that, that comes to mind about that is there's, a, there's one that's, I think it's called Empty Billboard, and it was shot across the street from the Biltmore, and on one particular day, this giant billboard was just white, and there was this tiny guy standing, well, he wasn't tiny, but tiny in the photo, man standing there, he must have moved his face, and so there's now an empty sign with the guy who's got basically an empty face. So we kind of share this idea of like, how do you represent uh, events from the subconscious mm -hmm. in this world, in words or in pictures? How do you signify, but yet keep it familiar? And so there's these shorthands and, and to kind of explore, um, that kind of interaction between the conscious mind and the subconscious. And is that dreams? Is that memories? You know, what is that? And um, how do we figure out what that is supposed to sound like on the page? What's that supposed to look like in a picture? And so it turned out that we had both been sort of independently investigating um, Marlo is so excited about the book. Yeah. She's um, it turns crazy. out, and by the way, like a weird, heavy breathing you can't identify, totally dreamlike state. That makes sense. It's like I had this crazy dream and there was this like snuffle creature and I could never quite get a handle on it. That's like a thing. But so, you know, even though, so, I, but I think there's words that, you know, nostalgic, um, 
dreamlike, you know, those kinds of, there are certain kinds of aesthetic things that you could talk about from the prose in the book right. and from the pictures. And so, so even though they they weren't made to, to, to go together consciously, it turns out that they sort of belong together. And that's, that's the beauty of the book. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited about that part of it. But I was curious too about like, for you in terms of like, uh, wanting to write this way or yeah. not write this way because it's yeah. like you, as you just described it's kind of it's not writing yeah so okay a couple things happened I read this Henry Miller novel or not novel actually it was a collection of short stories um, in called Black Spring it was fairly early stories of his and one of them and so they're all and they're all like written like Henry Miller writes which is in this deceptively straightforward first person kind of intimate way. And like five or six short stories into it, here comes one called Into the Nightlife, A Coney Island of the Mind. And I'm like, I know that, that's the Ferlinghetti, except this was written in the 30s, so hold on a minute, but okay, whatever. And you start reading it, and his tone in the story is identical, you cannot, there's no shift in his literary style. But instead of telling you about the scene at the cafe or what's on his bicycle ride or where he pissed in some river, <laughs> there is, literally, there's another story in the book that's all about how great it is to go on a bike ride through the country and pee in the woods in France. Well, I, I gotta say, it's one of my Black favorite. Spring's one of my favorite my collections. My favorite thing to do. Well, right. So, but all of a sudden, you realize he's describing a scene that, you know, suddenly the woman turned into a different woman and then something about mother and then like some the, the cabinets on the ceiling and he's just super normal about the whole thing and it just blew my mind. And then I had a whole separate interest in sort of like the psychoanalytics, mm -hmm. um, the psychoanalysis movement and how that kind of came into being in the same time and place as the earliest surrealists because of their interest in the subconscious. And it just kind of all really made an impression on me. And I started keeping a dream journal. And then one day I was like, well, if I really had the dream and I woke up and I remember the dream that I just really had and I've had an emotional and or physiological response to the events in the dream and I remember it, how different is that really than something that quote unquote happened yesterday hmm. that I also remember had an emotional and physical right, response right, right, to. Right. Once it's in the past and it goes into the memory part of your brain, it's a formative event in your personality, in your life, like any other. Is it not, question mark? What? That's the experiment of the book. But doesn't it sort of, that sort of chases its tail, right? Because you, you, you can't have those memories until you've had the, the experience. Just like life. That's what made me start to think that maybe putting up a line of dream and reality as though they're different mm -hmm. wasn't actually that helpful right. in terms of like getting to know yourself. And that's a lot of the ideas behind Jungian psychoanalysis is like, you know, there is a truth that's truer than 
what you're going to tell me and that's what you're telling yourself and that's what goes on in dreams. So it, I was for a while calling the book Jungian fiction and then I was like, that's so fucking precious. Get the hell out. You got to stop saying that girl. Not like Oneric is any more accessible, but at least it's not like, you know, but, um, uh, you know, so to me, it kind of all belongs in that mm-hmm. pile. And the idea was, if you're going to write a memoir where you're going to be honest about formulative events in your life, can you do that if the events are only dreams you've had? Can you still uh-huh. achieve what a memoir wants to achieve by just recounting the dreams instead of the waking events? Uh-huh. Is that is that a thing? I don't know. We're about so to find out. You're, uh, so you're, you're positing this as a memoir. Yeah. But a dream memoir. Right. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> but see, explain. this is why Osceola and I were so in confluence with this because that what what he just said and it and what I want hopefully I hope you're inspired to talk about more is that that photography kind of exists at a similar junction, right? Mm. Where it's supposed to be this like unvarnished truth. I took a picture, it's real, don't ask questions. When in fact, there's a universe Mm -hmm. of conscious and unconscious choices that goes into creating. I was gonna ask him about that. So it's very, to me, that mirrors what I'm trying to accomplish with the memoir, with what a document might do in an interpretive format. And there you are. Well, I would say uh, there's photography and photography. Give me a dog. Here's a dog. She's so fat now. She's like 20 pounds. Lovely dog. Um, So there's there's different kinds of photography that different people do and that I do particularly. And one type of work that I do is pretty uh, interested in the way things actually are and, and not and pretty much documenting what's there. There's always a certain amount of interpretation that goes into what you're actually pointing the camera at, but there's, uh, some of my work is is definitely maybe obsessed with trying to be as real as possible, whatever that is. But this is the not that, that work. The, the pinhole work um, I really enjoy because um, it's generally not from a tripod, generally not about f-stops since there aren't any. It's much more fluid and freeform. A lot of the uh, the photographs are handheld, and um, some of them are at night. So what I like about that, I guess, concept is you take the smallest possible aperture. What would you not want to do with that? Bring it into a situation where there's not much light. So um, the solution is that the exposures are 30 seconds or more. And so in that case, of course, you'd put the camera on a tripod so that it would be steady, but I'm doing it handheld. So what you get then is sort of like, it's almost a performative painting sort of thing where I'm walking around with the camera and that walk is sort of being traced in the the images. And I have a name for this, which I've copyrighted, which is... um, It's true. It's a kinematic... TM. TM, pinhole exposures. (laughs) Kinematic being... I guess a, a, a type of physics that involves the objects in motion. Huh. So um, there's there's not all of the photographs are that, but many of them are handheld, and many of them I'm actually walking with the camera during the exposure. And this is and these are color pieces, right? All the photographs color? are color, and it, it almost hyper color in this particular 
uh, iteration of the print of the book. Mm -hmm. And so, just technically speaking, for pinhole, like the how, how do you do that? So, um, for those not, uh, right, I don't. Yeah, I still don't even really understand. So just <laughs> right. start at the beginning. I mean, I get the concept. Yeah. I mean, it's ancient, right? Yeah, camera obscura, but uh, that's exactly right. So on on the you know just for people not familiar on the very basic level, instead of having a lens on the camera, there's just a tiny hole, and the light because it's being forced through such a small aperture actually creates an image on the other side, and it is the same concept. A camera obscura is a room with a relatively small hole. Oh. Um, that's what camera obscura is. And that was used um, by painters. But, was, but why is the image upside down in a camera obscura? Well, just the way the light, and I, why is it not side, it's upside down, but it's not side to side reversed. What? I can't really explain that really? one to you. I yeah. So there's a variety of ways to make pinhole exposures. The way that many people from a certain generation found it out was you would take a a large oatmeal cylinder. Oatmeal used to come in these oh, cylinders yeah, 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 yeah. and you would make a little pinhole in the uh, tin top of that and you'd put a piece of uh, black and white paper in the back of it in the dark room and then you would you would uh, have something come you know be photo photo photo, photo paper. Oh, okay. And then you would you know process that and it would and some pinhole cameras can create very sharp images with almost infinite uh, depth of field. Um, I am using the pinhole, uh, usually you can make them out of a, a body cap for the camera. You just drill a hole in the body cap, then you put a piece of tin foil on top of that and you make, because with, uh, with the tin foil you can make a pretty accurate little, you take a pin and you make uh -huh. a little hole. Like a little, <laughs> yeah. like, like a bong in the yeah. old days. Yeah. Exactly yeah. like that. Uh -huh. You would stick it in yeah. an apple. Make it out of an yep. apple. Yeah. With the tin foil like an and a few apple. little holes and you're good to go. <laughs> so a lot like that. And then you can also get fancy ones. Um, in this, I have one that was made in the 70s by a Japanese company and they laser cut like a perfect oh, hole. And oh, wow. depending on how perfectly shaped the hole is, that, that determines how sharp the image is. And they can be very okay. sharp. Yeah, and what, what I'm doing is, uh, these are digital exposures, and I have a variety of cameras. Right now, it is my personal joy to have a medium format digital camera capable of extraordinary sharpness and detail, and putting a, dumbing that down to the intense degree of putting a, a pinhole on that just, just makes me happy in a sort of smirky kind of way. So, um, so I have like... Photographer, yeah, right. photographer humor. Yeah. Yeah, right now there's a bunch of photographers out there going, what? You're not allowed to do that with those cameras. That's not right. But that whole right. thing, so it, but it really, it gets to that same thing where it's like, it's very much, and maybe even arguably more so, a document of his presence in a time and place. Yeah. Right. So it's like more real than real, yet mm -hmm. it looks like the sort of opposite of that. Right. Or it has all this other information on top of the, the real. So, but at the same time, it gets you to a, a sense of like an emotional or a moody truth of the experience. 
that's, of the time and place. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's exactly right. I think all the technical stuff aside, it's really about trying to get a certain kind of image and a certain kind of right. feeling into the image. So whatever the process is that gets you there, and you can almost do it with an Instagram filter, but what appeals to me about this process is it is an in-camera process. So it's even though it's a digital camera, it's a very old school way of creating an image because yeah. it's just done there in the moment. And so very often I'll juxtapose two different scenes, but in camera, in the moment, I'll pivot from one side to the other and they'll be superimposed. Like and it's not a double exposure. Yeah. It's like a 45 second exposure and the first part of it's over here and mm-hmm. the second part of it it's over here, mm-hmm. but it's a single exposure, but it gives you... So there's all this crazy stuff that like, blows up what you expect, but at the same time kind of like goes deeper on what you expect. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I feel like it's not completely perfect, but it, it, that really is analogous to what I was trying to do with the text. Right. That those things belong in the same universe of activities and and inquiry. So speaking of the text, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking like, okay, so as a reader, uh, I'm like, okay, I, you know, I don't know if your book should come with a warning label, right? Because it's not, I'm gonna go on a journey, and there's not really an end to it. So it's like, so like, it's presented as a book, and it's presented as a narrative. And, it's, and because it's presented as a narrative, I have certain expectations, right? Yeah. So Did I, you read I, it yet? No, I, I, I read the piece that you had in... Gordy's Anthology, yeah. yeah. That was the beginning. That was the first chapter. And that's why it didn't feel like it had an ending. Because I would say, as a, as a non-interested party, that it does have a very <laughs> satisfying sort of narrative arc to it. And despite the fact that they're... Well, I'm not dream like you, you need one. I'm just oh, saying. No, no I want one. But so it, even though it is based on these dreams and has these sort of uh, sort of strange jaunts that happen in the logic of dreams, it does form a very satisfying um, narrative sort of path. And I, I feel like hmm, it's just. And it's also the, the length of it as a novella makes it a very just sweet read. And it's not, it's not something that people are going to find um, disconcerting or anything. But on a larger scale, like I said, I mean, like, it, it, you know, in an experimental piece, you know, you're expecting, or, or not. I mean, uh, if you know it's experimental, then you don't, like, go, oh, well, I don't expect. Yeah. Um, you know, the yeah. classic, like, oh, there's going to be a happy ending. Well, I wanted an, uh, something that felt like a beginning and something that felt like an ending. I wasn't that interested in the sort of, like, medias res device. Um, I, but um, I did all of that through editing only. Hmm. So the edits that I made were for sequence, And I, uh, instead of saying people's names, I said like their role. So I wouldn't say my sister, I wouldn't say Callan, I would say my sister. Hmm. Because, you know, it's my sister and then like her face changes, but it's still my sister because that's how dreams work, right? So I didn't want to muck around with a lot of that. So it just says my lover, my sister, my boss, my grandmother. Yeah. 
you know, but it'll say my grandmother, but with the face of our old gardener or whatever it right. is. I, I, you know, but I, I didn't. Noticed that that was like yeah. through that. That's how you were structuring it. I wanted to do that to help yeah. people and not like make them deal too much. And just like Osceola mentioned, that was part of the reason I wanted to keep it short too, because I figured mm-hmm. it's going to be weird. Let <laughs> it be sh- short. <laughs> right. But, uh, uh, so, and I put things in an order that I felt like moved or approximated a story, but I didn't fictionalize anything. I wasn't like, oh, I could really use a thing. Let's pretend I had a dream about whatever. Uh-huh. Nothing like that. Nothing. Cause it was very important to me to be able to say it was all true. Mm-hmm. Cause it all, I really did dream everything that's so, in there. Uh, uh, so, did so. You, so these dreams aren't sequential. Right, so you, you you wrote a journal and then you you know, right? So then you piece it, piece them together. It's right? mostly sequential. I just put like when I if I had like a recurring dream, sometimes I would put them in a row instead of you know just like throughout because there was I felt like there was a theme that ne- needed to like be examined a little bit, but it reads I feel as pretty linear. What do you think? Well, I think it's a jaunty text, and it's fun to read. <laughs> and and uh, I would say uh, <laughs> that every two or three pages, you get a photograph yeah. to just push you along. So you cannot Thank lose God. with this book. You cannot lose. There's a, you know, you could easily just page through and just look yeah, at the photographs. You could do that, but, totally. but I will say that the read is very, very. Uh, I, I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I've, I've, I've had read it like three or four times, and it uh, continues to uh, amuse and impress. All right, well, we're going to edit that out. Oh, no, no need. No need. It's totally <laughs> accurate. I mean, people pick up, and once they realize there's art in there, they just start flipping. And I'm like, yo, I'm standing right here. And then they're like, oh, these pictures are amazing. I can't wait to read the to read the text. And then they put the book down. And I'm like, no, that's cool. I get it. I get it. It's embarrassing to read in front of other people. Embarrassing. Yeah. I know that. Because then they're just staring at you, waiting to see what you think. Right. You know? Someone just gave me a card. And I'm like, do you want me to stand here and read your card in front of you? Or do you want me to let you leave and then I'll read your card? And they were like... Let me leave, right? It's, it's, it's a thing. Like, it's embarrassing to have your words read in front of you. I, I actually true. feel yeah. like people should know that if they're going to come on the 25th, they'll yes. be expected yeah, to like stand that. there and read the entire book in front of oh. me. All okay. right. Well, we're going to make that a condition. So, while we're here, and this is perfect timing, we shall plug the signing at the bookstore on the 25th, 6 to... Six to one more, John. So the the bookstore being A. G. Geiger on Chunking Court, and so we'll start at six. Shane is going to be reading a little bit, a little bit excerpts from the book, and there'll be books available for purchase. And then at some point, when the spirit moves us, as in a dream, we will drift (laughs) down the street (laughs) to Chunking Studio, where. there will be continued uh, festivities. Basically, um, some of the images that are in the book are going to be up on the wall, and you'll also be able to 
Yeah, and it's nice to get your own copy. Sandy's got a show. Sandy Rodriguez has a show oh, yeah? next door. And then it's and also... Charlie James that night. So, yeah, I think this does... Fine. The I did not street, know that. And it is Chinese New Year's, too. And, yes, and it is... But don't let that... You're the rat. Yeah, but don't mm-hmm. let the Chinese New Year thing scare you off because it's celebrated... The following Saturday, right? Like so it's, it's not, not the, parade night. It's not yeah, the yeah, traffic yeah, yeah, cluster yeah, here. So it's all the good vibes of Chinese New Year, but it's not the no parking fireworks hell of right. so of parade night. That's a very good point. Just to get so that out. I, for one, am looking very forward to the year of the rat because the year of the pig has just been horrid to me. It's been everything you would imagine. So I would say um, the other benefit of it being Chinese New Year's is that at some point after ten o'clock or so, there's festivities a block away at the uh, temple here, oh. including 500,000 firecrackers. firecrackers. Is, it that is that gonna happen on, on the 25th? Yes, so, the, oh, yeah, so the way it works in Chinatown is the actual Chinese New Year's, they right. actually do like a traditional ceremony, incense, and you can have yeah. them right no, out. I know, I, I always go over there, and you know, and they invented fireworks. That's that one up on Yale. Yeah, it, so it's just about a block. So after Yale after the thing at Chunking Studio, Alpine or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's um, I I don't want to mispronounce the name of the the temple, but it, it's it's a great experience. And then the next week, we do like yeah, the city's the civic festival. version with the mayor and all that sort of stuff in right. the big parade. Yeah, the, the so firecracker so, thing sets off Marla like she goes. So uh, I didn't realize yeah. we were going to have fireworks at, for our party too. I know. That's yeah. exciting, oh, you guys. Is, I know. So it starts at 6, wander down here at some point thereafter, and then for those But But then at like still 8.30, walking. 9, we'll take off and head over to the temple. That's right. Okay. Alright. Uber over because you'll be drinking. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I'm, I'm my cocktails and I'm using it. That's like an outer glass around here. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. See you on the 25th. Yeah. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. My guests tonight were Shana Nice dambrat and Osceola Retitoff. And they were discussing their book, Zen Psychosis, which, from which uh, Shana will be reading and signing copies in the bookstore on January 25th. That's a Saturday at 6 p.m. There'll be a reception afterwards at Osceola's studio, which is just a few doors down from the bookstore. And, uh, and, and Charlie James is also open that night with uh, a solo show with um, Sandy Rodriguez, an excellent artist, and I uh, recommend coming out for that as well. So it's going to be a fun night on the road, and uh, look forward to seeing you. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, music and artist management company Regime 72, and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out, MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and of course, AGGeiger.com. Thanks for listening.